welcome to this community-supported and farewell edition of the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from On the Media, The Sam Cedar Show, NPR, The Young Turks, The Time Is Now, and finally with This American Life. Former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney has raised $23 million in presidential campaign funds, more than any other Republican. It was a high-profile success for a Mormon politician. And when the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints let its longtime PR firm go recently, many thought they might be hoping to capitalize on Romney's success. Good PR, after all, has been a slippery thing for the country's fourth largest denomination. The Mormon Tabernacle Choir and the 2002 Winter Olympics, which first lofted Mitt Romney to a national stage, are obvious Mormon successes. But waiting until 1978 to desegregate the church? Not so much. Richard Osling, co-author of Mormon America, The Power and the Promise, says that in the face of declining membership, Romney may be ushering in the Mormon's moment. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, Romney isn't the first prominent Mormon in national politics, right? I mean, his father ran against Nixon in 68. There was Morris Udall, the Democratic senator from Arizona, who ran against Carter in 76. There's Orrin Hatch, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. How important a moment is this for the Mormon church? Well, there's no doubt that the Romney candidacy is is a big moment for the Mormon American because he probably has a shot at the presidential or vice presidential nomination. And I think it's fair to say that no previous Mormon has. At the same time, as you mentioned, Harry Reid has emerged as by far the most powerful Mormon to hold public office in this country. He doesn't have as high a profile as a Mormon because Romney held important church positions. But it's interesting these two figures have emerged simultaneously in a sense because it shows though Mormons tend to be very Republican and very conservative on the whole in their voting patterns. Uh, nevertheless, the church doesn't have a political ideology as such. You know, polls show that many Americans don't know anything about the church and most of what they do know is wrong. Can you give us a quick primer on Mormon belief? Boy, that, that's a complicated question, <laughs> but we could start with polygamy. I think folks have a general confusion about it. You know, don't these folks or didn't they practice polygamy? Part of the problem is, of course, that there are splinter groups which do practice polygamy. In fact, the church outlawed or ended polygamy in 1890, but it was established by the founding prophet, Joseph Smith. So it is part of the Mormon heritage in a general sense, and uh, Mitt Romney and many others have polygamous uh, forebears back in the 19th century. His great-grandfather had five wives, right? Yes, it certainly is a problem. I mean, they're at pains to make the point that we haven't practiced it for well over 100 years. This does provide the church a chance to sort of make its case and explain itself, and I think there'll be a lot of public interest. Yes, it's a teachable moment. On the other hand, uh, once you look into Mormonism, it can seem uh, awfully wacky to the uh, believers of more mainstream faiths, mostly because a lot of the founding myths occurred in such recent history. Yes, that's certainly true. I mean, the Mormon founder made the astonishing claim that Christianity essentially vanished from the face of the earth fairly soon after Jesus' lifetime and had to be restored by the American prophet. And indeed, these are things that are said to have happened right here in the United States in the 19th century, the receiving of golden tablets, new revelations alongside the Bible, the tablets that were taken by the angels so we don't have them his view of God and of Jesus Christ and uh, any number of other things would be at variance from your typical American churchgoer. Do you find it sort of funny that Romney, who needs to appeal to the evangelical voter and Christian conservatives generally in order to win the nomination, will have a problem potentially because those people, though they may share his values, don't in some cases see Mormonism as Christianity? Yeah, that's going to be a really interesting question. It's significant at this point in the campaign that the attacks on Romney on religious terms 
have come from liberal and secular writers and, and commentators. I don't know of any important evangelical Protestant leader who has said, I don't want a Mormon in the White House. They've pretty much been saying the opposite. However, the polls indicate a lot of wariness uh, in the American population about having a Mormon president, and uh, there's no doubt that there are evangelicals counted among those people. So it's just kind of a moment of truth, I guess you'd say, for a lot of American religious groups. Now, you've said that Romney has yet to have his JFK moment. What do you mean by that? Well, in the 1960 campaign, there was a huge religious issue. We had never had a non-Protestant as president. So Kennedy made a famous speech in Houston to a ministerial association, and he told all these Protestant folks, So it is apparently necessary for me to state once again, not what kind of church I believe in, for that should be important only to me, but what kind of America I believe in. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote. It was a brilliant address. Now, everybody's saying, well, is Romney going to give a similar address? People seem to be saying he ought to do it, but there are no firm signs that uh, he intends to. We have one example of that reluctance to engage when Judy Woodruff posed this question to him last year on PBS. There are some aspects of Mormonism uh, that many Americans might not understand. The belief that uh, Jesus Christ will appear again in the state of Missouri, or that God has a material body, that he was fathered by another God. Are these legitimate issues for people to, to, to ask you about? Well, there's a, there's a leap of faith associated with every religion. You, ha- you haven't exactly got those doctrines right, but if you have doctrines you want to talk about, go talk to the church, because okay. that's not my job. He may be calculating that it's better just to kind of low-key it, but I think the polls show enough nervousness at this point that if I were advising him politically, I'd probably say, you know, you really have to uh, tackle this thing and deal with the questions that are swirling around the Internet. Richard, thank you very much. Thank you. Richard Osling and his wife, Joan, are completing an updated edition of Mormon America, The Power and the Promise. For while this year it may be a Catholic against whom the finger of suspicion is pointed, in other years it has been, and may someday be again, a Jew or a Quaker or a Unitarian or a Baptist. It was Virginia's harassment of Baptist preachers, for example, that led to Jefferson's statute of religious freedom. This past month has shown me very clearly why, as much as I love the show and as much as I would desperately like to continue producing it on a regular basis, it's shown me why, as I will explain over the rest of this show, uh, why this will be the last episode that I will produce of The Best of the Left. All right, let's listen to that clip. Uh, This is for Ethan out there. Uh, uh, He enjoyed uh, his favorite part about uh, FUBAR was apparently the uh, transcript of the call to the Creationist Museum that I made. uh, This is, uh, I guess... Almost a year ago now, maybe, uh, and let's, let's say it refers to the majority report because that's uh, at the time I was uh, doing the majority report. And uh, this is the actual phone call. Uh, it's a real call, folks. Uh, we've edited it for time, but uh, not in any way to uh, misshape the content. I didn't need to do that. This is Mark. May I help you? Yeah, hi, Mark. It's Sam Cedar. I just wanted to ask, uh, just to find out what the, the Creation Museum was all about. It's being built by Answers in Genesis. We're a Bible-defending organization. It will be a walk through history, according to the Bible, but along the way we'll expose uh, some of those grave problems with uh, evolution theory. When you're talking about things that uh, have occurred in the unobservable past, you're, you're getting outside of observational science and dealing with historical but things. Is there... and you have to um, interpret evidence 
that we might dig up in the ground today, it doesn't say it's 5.5 million years old. So, for instance, carbon dating, you could look to the Bible for a solution as opposed to the way that scientists... Evolutions don't use carbon dating to date dinosaur fossils, for example. What do they do? Well, they don't use carbon dating for that. They use other dating methods, which have built-in assumptions and, and fudge factors. And For example... Yeah. Well, at this point, I defer to one of our scientists who has a Ph.D. I understand. So what is the Christian version of why the dinosaurs aren't around anymore? All right. Um, but this is our model. This is our best guess. You know, you don't have scientific proof for the disappearance of, uh, of, of dinosaurs. In fact, there are even some evolutionists today, one at the University of Chicago, who believes there's a dinosaur even in Africa uh, today. We think that uh, after a worldwide cataclysmic flood, the climate changed, less vegetation, people hunting dinosaurs, that they, uh, over the years, started, uh, started perishing, probably 4,000 years ago. We have dragon legends around the world. We have the uh, country flag of Wales that has a dragon on it. We have pictographs in, uh, in Utah of dinosaur-like creatures. There's a lot of evidence that dinosaurs have been around recently. From your perspective, how old is the Earth? When the museum opens, we will take a position that the Earth is, is young. It's certainly not millions or billions of years old. Uh, between five and 10,000 years old? Yes. Again, we can't prove that. I mean, again, we're dealing with historical science as opposed to observational science. When did uh, humans show up? Ah, just after the dinosaurs, the sixth day of creation. That's our, our belief. We believe the best facts of science, when best interpreted, support that dinosaurs and humans have been contemporaneous. Uh, that uh, Creationist Museum is uh, just about uh, ready to be built. I think it's almost completed, I should say. Yeah, the did. <laughs> Laura was telling me the dinosaur entry on Conservapedia is, uh, is pretty funny. What is it? It says all the same stuff that he just said about how there are dragon legends all over the world. You need this museum to fight this movement of these natural science museums that are popping up everywhere. Spreading the lies that uh, somehow the planet is older than 10,000 years old. Frankly, this is the time in the life of the show and, and my own life that I always really knew would come, that one day I would have a job and responsibilities and things that would take my time away from the show as, as it hadn't done before, that, that would cause me to really not have the time to do it. It's, it's the whole reason I started asking for help in the first place uh, with guest producers and, and help gathering show clips. And this is just what it's come to. Can gays and lesbians be cured? The controversial idea that counseling and therapy can overcome homosexual tendencies is at the heart of what's called the ex-gay movement. Renee Gattel of member station KJZZ attended a conference in Phoenix, Arizona, devoted to these therapies. The all-day event at Bethany Bible Church is called Love One Out. It's sponsored by Focus on the Family. The essential message is that homosexuality can be overcome through therapy and devotion to Jesus Christ. I used to be gay. Big whoop. Alan Chambers is one of the speakers. You know what? God did an amazing work in my life, and I'm so proud every day to be a living, breathing example of His grace and His mercy and His transformation. You know, and His I talk is called Help for Those Who Struggle and is one of many smaller sessions over the course of the day. About 75 men and women are in the audience. I think you'll, you'll find that success is inevitable. Amen? Thank you. Chambers is president of Exodus International, an umbrella group for many Christian ex-gay ministries. He says more and more people uncomfortable with their same-sex attractions are seeking what some in the ex-gay movement call reparative therapy. Cure is not a word that I would ever use. Certainly that's not what we're advocating with regards to homosexuality. But we are saying that it is a condition that people have found freedom from. They have changed. Evangelical Christians aren't the only religious group offering to help gays and lesbians suppress their sexual desires. There's a Jewish program, Jonah, Jews offering new alternatives to homosexuality. 
A Roman Catholic ministry called Courage focuses on chastity and follows a 12-step program. Each approach is a bit different, but generally they include prayer, biblical teachings, and some sort of individual or group therapy. But some mental health experts are skeptical. There really isn't any scientifically adequate research behind reparative therapy. Clinton Anderson directs the Lesbian, Gay, and Bisexual Concerns Office in Washington, D.C., for the American Psychological Association. The APA says so-called conversion therapy is not supported by science. We have the concern, first of all, that the therapies have never been adequately demonstrated to be safe or effective, um, and that the promotion of such therapies contributes to the climate of prejudice and discrimination in this country. But leaders in the ex-gay movement say thousands of Americans are now living as former homosexuals and that each person should have the right to decide for themselves what is best. The Love One Out conference is taking a lunch break and people are streaming out of the church. About a hundred protesters are chanting outside. Many say they find the conference offensive and that gays and lesbians shouldn't need to change who they are, regardless of their religion. Standing nearby and watching it all are Penny and Mark Vatcher and their son, Brett. They live in San Diego, but made the 350-mile drive to hear the testimonials. Brett Vatcher is 16 years old and says he knows he's gay. I did not want to come at all. <laughs> I don't know, like, I didn't even know what to do. So I was just like, I guess that's, I have no choice because, like, my parents, you know... They control my life. <laughs> Brett's parents are both devout Christians and say they just want what's best for their son. They're considering therapeutic programs to help Brett become heterosexual. His mother Penny says the conference was inspiring. Even though my son right now is at this point not desiring to be anything following the Lord, I believe that seeds are planted today and I have the faith that it's going to be growing and watering through his life and one day he will accept Christ. Brett says he listened with interest to the formerly gay speakers and found their stories compelling. But standing next to his mom and dad, Brett admits he's not interested in any kind of therapy. Don't tell my parents, but no. <laughs> I don't know, because I know I'm gay, and like, I don't know, their stories are really inspiring, but I know this is me, and I don't really want to change. Brett's dad, Mark, said the conference taught him that he needs to learn to love his son unconditionally. Uh, absolutely. Love him forever. He also says the weekend renewed his hopes that one day his son will become straight. If there was any real doubt before that I owe maybe all of my success in Washington to this show, it was taken away a couple of weeks ago when it was actually confirmed by my boss at the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, Mike Tidwell, that, um, that me doing this show and showing my ability to be self-motivated plus my ability to produce a new show for his organization is is really, I think, the deciding factor that, that got me the job at, uh, at CCAMP. Uh, we were talking earlier in the uh, show about how Mike Huckabee was in the Republican debates and talking about, hey, listen, I'm just not a big fan of evolution, you know, I just think that the Earth was created in six days or whatever he was saying, you know, just like it is in Genesis. He said, no, I don't know exactly how many days it was it took and how long the earth is around for but i believe in genesis literally and i'm really proud and you know it seemed a little goofy to us to rule out evolution and so tony doherty uh he's a listener of the show sent us an email on this and i uh, read it and opened it and loved it story in the new york times about what the good icelandic people believe they believe in elves okay and once, apparently, uh, Tom Brokaw went and was talking to the uh, leader of Iceland and said, so, do you believe in elves? And a guy had to be like, ah, you know, he's got to assuage his local pro-elf community, <laughs> but he doesn't want to seem like a clown to the rest of the world uh, by being pro-elf. So he was, you know, wavering between pro-elf and anti-elf. This is literally true, by the way. Okay. So, and then Tony included this uh, great New York Times article with it. First, let me quote, uh, so you have a sense of the, what the issue here is. Let me explain the polls in, in Iceland. Polls, quote from the New York Times, polls consistently show that the majority of the population either believe in elves, generally described as human-like creatures. What's the percentage there again? Uh, uh, clear majority. Majority it's of the population. Clear majority. Yes. Uh, either believe in elves, uh, who are, of course, generally described as human-like creatures, 
who are fiercely protective of their rocky homes, obviously, or is not willing to rule out their existence. And a lot of people know, quoted an article are like, well, I'm not saying that there are elves living in that rock, but I, hmm, I'm not ruling it out either. I got a sense that, yeah, that, that they are. They're morons. Elves live in trees. <laughs> so That's where they make the cookies. So, living in rocks. <laughs> so uh, they have, you know, all these different examples throughout Iceland. You know, they're doing a planning committee, and they're like, well... I just, I, I, I just want to, very, very quickly, you can't make a cookie in a frozen rock. Duh. All right, go on. Okay, that's a very good point. I, I don't think they took that into consideration. Um, they're having a planning committee on how to re- rebuild a town and stuff or build up a, a certain uh, section of the town. They're like, well, we should consult with the uh, elves. <laughs> no, but, you know, here in America, when we say, hey, listen, what is what would Jesus do? We find that totally reasonable and mm-hmm. like that nobody would find yeah, that ridiculous WWED. Right? wwed what would the elves do okay and so they're building for example one of the they live in the rocks right they're building a road and they're building a two-lane a highway there and some people say no the elves are going to object and they have by the way elves communicators mm. they're like priests okay they communicate with the elves mm-hmm. and so people are convinced that the elves are going to object to this thing and then two bulldozers mysteriously don't work Really? So they changed it from a two-lane highway to a one-lane highway with this enormous rock jutting out because that's the rock that the elves live in. And Oh, they didn't want to disrupt that, that of rock. Of course, right. but of course. Mm. Now, when you say it in terms of elves, and this is real. This is people in Iceland. If you go ask them, do you believe in elves? They'll be like, oh. Either some of them will say flat out yes. Obviously, some will say no. And a lot will say, I'm not saying I do or I don't, but I feel like I saw one the other day. Do they have uh, books in Iceland? But do they have books in the United States of America? And that's my point. When you say it like, no, seriously, Jesus, this guy who lived 2,000 years ago, he he told me these things. And that's why when I have L Jesus communicators. Then they're called priests and preachers and stuff. And so that makes perfect sense. But voodoo and elves, come, that's silly. At that's least in uh, at least in the United States, uh, those type of beliefs, they don't get in the way of big business. <laughs> like there's no, no contractor going to build a highway who's going to be like, Jesus lives in that mountain? I don't think so. I'm building a four-lane highway. Get out of the way. No, but what the genius of America is, those big contractors and the big companies have adopted Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so when they come to your town, they say, Jesus told me to build a four-lane highway. Right. So these, the problem with the elves is they haven't figured out a way to take over the Icelandic corporations. The elves need to come in and say, hey, listen, the elves really need some breathing space here. Can you clear out these rocks with this two-lane highway? That way the elves will be really happy. There's a great quote in the article that says, at one point, when somebody asked, I hope it's okay with the elves. Well, look, apparently they're fiercely protective of their rocky homeland. Uh, uh, I suspect they'll let you know. (laughs) One way or another. Yeah. So as it is, I will be refocusing my energy away from this show and and towards my new job and actually a new podcast that is part of my new job if you didn't hear the announcement before if you hadn't checked it out yet world on fire podcast is the name of the podcast check it out worldonfirepodcast.org and and it's the new show it's identical to this one only in that it focuses on global warming exclusively and so you know that that I get to essentially do this um but as part of my job is amazing to me and and heart-wrenching that i can no longer dedicate the time that this show deserves and and the support that this show has given me and that all of you in the audience have given me has has been very very important to me the show has been the the single largest constant factor in my life over the past year and a half and it's going to be a lot different for me to uh, to not continue to do this show. A prophet is a seer, one who sees things even before the fuller development happens. One who speaks truth to power in spite of the consequences. One who loves one's nation, but at the same time, has the courage to tell the truth about the shortcomings and to encourage that nation 
to live up to the better angels of their nature. Now, that's a prophet. If you're just joining us, this is The Time Is Now on Air America Radio. Let's return to my conversation with Noam Chomsky. What is the impact of all of the spin we are getting these days? What happens to a society where words are turned about and uh, used to say one thing when the meaning is another? Uh, You can read about it in the Gospels where they talk about false prophets. It warns the people to judge them by their fruits, by their actions, not by their words, because their words are deceit and distortion. Well, our false prophets are the educated classes, the media, uh, others who are those who are favored, just as they were at the time. It was the false prophets who were honored at the time, not the dissidents, you know, not the ones we now call prophets. Hundreds of years later, they were honored, not Jesus. The true prophets were uh, driven into the desert, uh, tortured, murdered. The false prophets were honored. And yes, they're ravening wolves, and you should judge them by their deeds, not their words. And that goes right through history. There's always a dissident fringe, and they are treated badly. How badly depends on what state it is. Uh, But the uh, mainstream educated classes uh, tend to be supportive of power. They're the false prophets, and yes, judge them by their words. And now it's a more sophisticated system of distortion and misrepresentation than it was, say, at the time of the Gospels or before and through history. But the phenomena are pretty similar. Phenomena are pretty similar. And uh, you have to... uh, uh, By now, there are huge industries, public relations industry, directed to what they themselves call engineering of consent and control of attitudes and beliefs to marginalize the population to keep them in ignorance, to keep them inactive and deluded. That's their goal. They say so. And in fact, that's what they do. Uh, you, Everyone knows it, in fact. When you look at a television ad, say for a lifestyle drug, you don't expect to be informed. You expect to be deluded. And those same institutions run elections. They sell candidates the way they sell toothpaste. And their goal is to keep the people marginalized. Power always regards the population as a danger. And that's what we have to overcome. In my church, they used to talk about, Lord, save us from weak resignation to the evils we deplore. And so you at least alert us to these things. And I want to say a word of thanks to you. One of my friends, I asked, uh, you know Noam Chomsky, don't you? Yeah, what do you say about him in regards to his religion? And this friend said, Walter Wink was his name, said, a man who tells the truth and is willing to endure the consequences from steady truth-telling, that man deserves at least the recognition that he has a serious spiritual impact. So I want to express my gratitude to you for, for what you are trying to do to awaken us. I'm trying to help awaken in a spiritual way, but I am aware that without a serious understanding of the currents in my own nation and the way we impact the world, there will be a hollowness to that spirituality. So perhaps for those of you who critique it out of philosophical and linguistic and political expertise, those of us in spiritual directions will also be able to sort of say, America, we can make a better grade than we are making now. I absolutely concur, and thanks a lot. Good to talk to you. Good to talk with you. Back in December is when I initiated the conversion of this show from a one-man operation to a community-built podcast. I basically asked for help explaining that I didn't have the time to do all the work anymore and I needed help from the community. And on top of that, the day may come when I wasn't able to do the show at all if I ever got myself a real job or anything like that. I said then that my goal was to build a show that could live on without me if if i could stop doing the show and it could live on uh with the efforts of others then that is how i would consider myself to be successful it's the latest and final installment of the hugely popular left behind novels 
Since the first one was published 11 years ago, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins have sold 43 million copies, not counting kids' books, movies, and the video game that have spun off the series. The books tap into a 200-year-old tradition among some evangelicals of reading the Book of Revelations as a literal playbook for the coming apocalypse. But before the world actually ends, the belief goes, the faithful will be raptured, summoned to heaven, and the sinners left behind will experience horrific suffering. And that's basically what happens over the course of the first 15 installments of Left Behind, as believers battle the forces of darkness commanded by the Antichrist in the form of a Romanian Secretary General of the United Nations. Finally, the Messiah returns to preside over a thousand-year reign of paradise on earth. It is here that the latest novel opens, a novel that co-author Jerry Jenkins says was not the easiest to write. The big challenge was if this is to be utopia with Jesus on the throne and David as his prince and that type of thing, would there be any sin or conflict, any crime, anything that would be grist for fiction? So I had to quickly try to get to the end and say, okay, Satan is now loosed again. He's amassing an army. He's fighting Jesus. You have to have conflict to have good fiction. How literally would you say you're using the book of Revelation? So are you just riffing on its themes, or are you directly putting them into modern language? It's a little bit of the latter. Um, if it's not in symbolic or figurative language, just as a matter of exercise, we take it as literally as possible. And that seems to have been what makes this series a phenomenon, that people tend to understand difficult biblical passages they didn't understand before because they were trying to understand them allegorically, and if you do that, you could probably get 200 different uh, interpretations. But there has been, in recent years, a sort of backlash against the Left Behind series, not just in the secular press, but among Christian thinkers, theologians who object to your reading of Revelations. Um, they say that your portrait of a vindictive savior who returns to earth to slaughter unbelievers by making their heads explode and their tongues dissolve in their mouths is just wrong. Yeah, that, these are people either who haven't read the series or haven't read the Bible. I mean, we, we didn't make that stuff up. That is in the Scripture. And it isn't that he's vindictive. It's that finally it comes to the point where his patience has run out and justice is meted out because for thousands of years he's tried to get people's attention. They've ignored everything else. And some people have said, well, would a loving God send somebody to hell? In essence, he's not sending anybody. He's inviting everybody to join him and, and go to heaven. And if they disagree and choose their own way, then that happens to be the result. And so is that how you want your readers to engage with the novels as prophecy, as inspiration, or as entertainment? Really all three. I mean, we have never shrunk from the idea that we have a message. We believe these are true events that will happen someday, and we want people to be ready. Now, we realize in a, an age of pluralism and an age of tolerance that that this can be a very offensive message, and you know, that a lot of people will laugh at it, a lot of people scoff, many will disagree. And you know what they do with the message is really up to them. We're just glad we live in a country where we're free to espouse our views and we can compete in the marketplace of ideas. So over the years, there have been a lot of attempts by the secular press to get their heads around the left-behind phenomenon and its enormous popularity. What do you think the media most often miss or get wrong about the series? Well, one of the things that I think has been really unfortunate is that I notice that some people who don't read the series hear what they think the series is about from other people, and uh, they make judgments on our motives or on our feelings that are really incorrect. I mean, we, we believe that Jesus is the way to God, and we believe he said that. I don't understand why it's that way, and it might sound exclusivistic, and it might sound mean-spirited, and you say, well, what about well-meaning people of other faiths? That breaks my heart, and I know wonderful people that don't agree on this, and my fear is, from what I read, that I might not see them in eternity, and I want to. And so when people say, oh, these guys are gloating, they've got the answer, and somebody else doesn't, and they're going to heaven, everybody else is going to hell, that is a fear of ours, but it's certainly not something we gloat about and you know put our thumbs in our lapels and look down on people. Given what you said the ultimate purpose of this series was, to warn people, to get them to change their behavior— did you ever feel the need to sort of dumb the story down or sex the story up in order to garner the biggest audience possible? Um, well, first of all, the warning isn't to get people to change their behavior because our theology is that it's not behavior that has anything to do with it. It's belief. It's whether you believe that Jesus is the way to God or not. And I, I've often said that 
some of the people that are left behind are nicer people than the people who go, but we're all sinners and some are saved by grace. But no, I never, uh, I never wrote these thinking about the audience or the size of the audience. When we first wrote it, we thought we had something special and it might sell 100,000 or 200,000 copies, but for it to cross over and sell tens of millions, you people often say, how do you sit down and write a bestseller? You don't. If you think in that way, you're going to wind yourself in circles trying to do that. As far as dumbing it down, I've been <laughs> I've been criticized for being a pedestrian writer. I'll never be accused of being a literary writer. You know, I, I'd love to be smart enough to write a book that's hard to read, but I write for people like me. I'm a pedestrian reader. I love to read a good story that keeps me turning the pages. And so basically, I'm writing the story for myself and hoping there's lots of people like me out there. Jerry, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Jerry Jenkins is the co-author with Kim LaHaye of the Left Behind series, the 16th and final installment, Kingdom Come. It's bookstores this week. So now I'm very happy to announce that I believe my ultimate goal for this show has been achieved. So although this will be my last episode... It will not be the last episode, as the job responsibilities of producer will now be passed on to uh, the one and only Billy from Oregon, who has helped more for this show than I could have ever imagined any individual helping. And he will be in charge of everything that happens, along with three guest producers who are going to help him out. Uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit from politics to uh, religion slash biology slash evolution. Have a little bit of fun. Uh, you know, sometimes we evolution is a uh, political issue now. As we all know. Uh, oh, is that right? I, I mean, didn't know. It, you know, I mean, it's in some some um, depending on what side of the political aisle and you believe in evolution or you don't. There's there's a lot of debate about about the validity of evolution now, Jenk. I don't know whether you knew that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we live with cavemen. <laughs> all right. Uh, we are going to now talk to Robin Morenz Hennig. She wrote a piece for. Uh, New York Times Magazine, and what I like about these pieces is that it, they're a little longer and hence get to really dive into an issue and kind of figure it out, but yet without having to read three different texts from anthropologists and biologists. Uh, I love the little summaries. I, it's almost like a little cheat sheet for me. Uh, so, Robin, welcome to the Young Turks. Thank you very much. Um, all right. So, Robin, it, what your piece, Darwin's God, talks about is the idea that there might be a biological basis for believing in God, uh, that there might be an evolutionary advantage, or perhaps not, perhaps it's a byproduct, uh, for the reason why people believe in God. And that's really interesting. Can you tell us, uh, apparently there's two major theories, or two and a half almost, but two major theories on why uh, a belief in God might have developed? Right. Well, you begin with noticing that a belief in something supernatural is almost universal. Uh, universal meaning not necessarily 100% of people, but 100% of cultures across the world. And that's what makes evolutionary biologists wonder what the purpose of that might have been. Anything that, that we have that's common, we wonder about how it might have helped us in terms of evolution. So the, the debate is whether religious belief itself was somehow adaptive, somehow helped us survive in um, you know prehistoric times, or whether the belief is actually a byproduct of something else going on in our brains that was adaptive. So uh, whether it is something like our thumb, which winds up helping us have a huge evolutionary advantage, or like the male nipple that just happens to be there because evolution never bothered weeding it out. Well, kind of. It's more like... Um, the alternative, the byproduct alternative, is something closer to, like, the redness of our blood, that um, the blood needs to be able to carry oxygen to all parts of our bodies, and it's just um, a byproduct and, and a consequence of the hemoglobin being red that makes the blood red. Right. Uh, we need blood, but the blood doesn't need to be red. It could have been blue. It just so happened that it was red. Right. And well, so I mean... in our brains, in terms of evolution, what we need is the ability to... Um, to tell when there are agents out there, things out there that might do us harm, and also the ability to imagine that the people we interact with have minds of their own. If you think about it, you know, you don't see your own mind, you don't see anybody else's mind, and yet you can sort of um, sense what that person is thinking, what that person knows, maybe if that person's trying to lie to you. Um, so once you can sort of imagine a, an invisible mind, it's an easy leap to invis imagine an invisible supernatural mind, like the mind of God. 
Right. So it sounds to me, Robin, like you're uh, one of these heathens. Is that what? Is, <laughs> is that the conversation we're having? Okay. I, I tried to keep my personal views totally out of this, um, right. and and it turns out that the people who are studying the evolution of religion aren't necessarily heathens or atheists themselves. There are actually a couple of of very devout scientists who are looking at this from a an evolutionary point of view. It doesn't mean that just because you can explain why we are open to religious belief, that doesn't mean that, that there's no God who put that openness there. And by well, the way, you said they're devout scientists. You mean they're devout, some of these guys are devoutly religious. Right. Um, they're all devout, devoutly scientific. Right. That's true. Uh, you know, Robin, oh, the example that the one person that you cited that is clearly uh, quite religious and, and still uh, is looking into the reasons, the evolutionary and biological reasons for this, is he said, look, uh, in biology, when I find out what makes me feel the feeling of love towards my wife through, you know, chemicals, etc., but it doesn't mean I don't love my wife. Right. I still love my wife. It's just we were finding out why. Right. And, and you know, those are questions that are asked about um, about scientific investigations a lot. You know, maybe we don't want to know really what what's underlying a, a wonderful feeling like love or religion, but no understanding it physiologically or evolutionarily is not the same thing as as just explaining it away. It's just understanding it. You know, we, we talk a lot about religion on this show, Robin, and you, you just touched on something there that, you know, Jenk and I are not uh, terribly religious, and at times we're, we're, well, we're not ter- we're not religious at all, and at times we're pretty hostile to religion. But one thing I think that we clearly miss um, is that what you just described there, like maybe we don't want to have a scientific understanding of, of this great feeling of love, but what I know we miss sometimes is that there is a great feeling that some people have with religion. It just it is it is like the feeling of love you have for another person, and obviously that in and of itself is is not bad at all. It's not something that I think anybody should be afraid of. Right, um, but but questioning it, you know, trying to tap it is of great interest. Oh, and definitely. There are yeah. there are religious groups who are are very angry at this idea that you can. Uh, apply scientific inquiry to something like religion. They say that that's offensive. That you're crossing the right. line that's always been yeah. existed. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder, I, w- I wonder why they would resist that. I can't. Yeah, can't imagine. <laughs> oh, of course, because they don't want you to have real information. They want you to believe in their the cave myths that they've come up with. Okay, well, there so. is a certain under you know a certain underlying assumption in some religions that you just have to toe the party line and asking questions really? about it is threatening. Of so. course! That's what they've been doing for... <laughs> I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. <laughs> right. But, but, um, been, more often, they've been doing this for thousands of years. I mean, they've been crucifying people and hanging them and burning them just to make sure that they don't get questioned. So, well, I, you know, I got my, it. My original assignment was write about science and religion. And, um, and I spent a long time reading those textbooks that you didn't want to have to read yourself. And, and that's why this article ended up being just about the evolutionary studies of religion, because the other stuff can get so, in my opinion, off-topic and, right. and not really about the relationship between those two disciplines at all. Well, Robin, I want to get into the heart of what you talk about here, because I think what you did was more interesting than the standard piece on science versus religion. And we're talking to Robin Morantz Hennig, and she wrote for the New York Times magazine, Darwin's God, and you should really get a chance to read it. Um, and because we're not going to be able to do it justice here, but I, I want to get into at least some of it. I thought that perhaps I was surprised that the, that the scientists, that there wasn't a school of thought that, that it is necessary, evolutionarily necessary or advantageous, because simply for the idea that it gives us hope and purpose. And, you know, towards the end, you talk about one of the guys who kind of touches on the idea of hope. But it would seem to me, evolutionarily, that that would be a gigantic advantage for the people who had hope of things better, uh, uh, that better things were going to come, would fight harder to survive and to work together than, than people who didn't, who didn't have hope of an afterlife or a united purpose, even if it was a fanciful one. Right. Well, the, the people who object to that adaptationist view say that Hope is good, but uh, there are a lot of things that could give us hope, and so it's, it still doesn't explain why religious belief in the supernatural is the thing that people are relying on. Um, also, because a lot of the hope is based on, um, on things that you can't observe and that can't help you negotiate the real world. You know, most of the brain evolution that took place took place in the Stone Age. 
um, that was when the period of the most rapid evolution of, of modern humans. And so if you think about what it took to survive in the Stone Age, a belief in things that actually weren't true was going to be disadvantageous. It might make you think that um, it was a good idea to store your food and to work harder because there was going to be a future, but if you weren't really tuned into what was going on in the world around you, you were going to be eaten. No, but I, I think that w- what is a huge advantage is not just hope in things that are rational, but specifically an irrational hope. An irrational hope that, hey, you know what, maybe, you know, we could, even though we're a smaller army, we can beat this bigger well, army. Well, that's true, except that, um, no, that's what I'm saying about the irrational hope and, um, you know, that God is on our side, so we're, on a, we're a smaller army, but we can win. Um, it might be good to get the fighters out there, but if they're a smaller army, they're going to lose. You know, it, it still comes up against not if they're Spartans. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, listen, I, I don't. I mean, I think that that's. I really disagree with that. I, I think that uh, most of the time that that's what leads people to be able to survive things that normally would not have been survivable, and those are the conditions that existed in the Stone Age. That we, it was not. You know, we weren't living in air-conditioned houses. We were. Well, you know, one bigger argument that the adaptationists make is that you also needed groups. Humans are social, and um, and the connection of a religious belief made for a very cohesive group and that group was more likely to outbeat a bigger group Um, if they were more cohesive we're talking to uh, robin morantz hennig from the new york times magazine her piece uh, darwin's god will be in this sunday's uh, uh, paper is that that's right um rob you know i'm tempted to believe and and you touch on this in the piece that we all believe in something supernatural whether it's religion or not i mean i'm a i think i like to think of myself as a very a uh, rational God, for, uh, rational. Oh, wow, that was interesting. A rational guy from the uh, I am God from the uh, uh, you know from the reason-based community. But when I get on an airplane, I like to tap the airplane's uh, hull as I get on the plane. And when I anchored in Charleston, South Carolina, I used to sort of touch fists with my co-anchor. And man, I thought if we didn't touch fists. You know, everything was going to fall apart. Yeah, I, I really am glad you dropped that habit. <laughs> I just got to say, Ben, before you answer, Robin, go ahead. Uh, you're going to use that against him. <laughs> so, but well, I mean, what, but we all, so I mean, it's not all, but I mean, most of us have that sort of that. That seems like an instinct. Mm-hmm. It does. It seems like like there's something going on there because um, I think that if you talk to any atheist, you'll find that um, that he does something like that. Right. I do something like that, and um, and that is. A variation on religious belief, you know, uh, so that even if you kind of impose your rationality on top of what everybody else is passing around as religion these days, there seems to still be some something innate and atavistic that kind of percolates up and makes us, you know, touch the airplane to make sure everything's okay, makes us sort of afraid of bad luck or the evil eye or something, even when we don't think that it's God who's going to do any retribution, uh, there's some sense that that there's something out there. Robin, we got time for one last question. I mean, I I like the story you put in there with the professor who tells even his atheist students, okay, something you don't, you know, something's bad going to happen in in this box, okay, even if you don't believe in God. So go ahead and put your pen in, and they put their pen, and they don't care. They put your driver's license in they get a little scared, even the atheists. Then he's like, okay, now put your hand in there. And they're like, whoa, 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 big guy. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got my own superstitions. I, I believe me, even though I rail against religion. So that makes, leads me to my last question, which is uh, the people who are atheists or agnostics or want people to stop believing in these fairy tales, we're fighting a losing battle, aren't we? Uh, it does seem to be the case, including uh, th- this is basically the bottom line of one of the guys that I focus on in the article, Scott Atran, who's a, um, an anthropologist, who thinks no matter how much you try to argue against the bad effects of religion, some kind of religion is here to stay. It's just built into human nature. Yeah, it's kind of like fighting against eyes or ears. I mean, good yeah. luck. We still have them. You're right. <laughs> All right. Robin Morantz Hennig. Everybody check out Darwin's God in this Sunday's New York Times Magazine. Thank you so much for joining us on the episode. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks. And now for my wonderful and unbelievably supportive audience, I want to encourage you now more than ever to help support this show and the new management that it's under. 
help, uh, you know, if you want, volunteer and help become a, a guest producer, help gather clips for the show and send them in to the website through the community, uh, join the community, get involved, uh, talk with listeners. I will be in the community, I think, more often now than I have been in the past. And, uh, and let's revive the community around this show as we revive the show itself. At the peak of their popularity six years ago, the Left Behind books sold better than any other hardcover novel. Sales of the most recent book are expected to be much more modest. So where are the Christian media headed from here? An article in the current Rolling Stone suggests one answer. It profiles Ron Luce, the founder of an evangelical youth group called Battle Cry. For several years, Luce has been holding massive stadium rallies around the country, that are part rock concert and part religious revival. In between shows, he runs a missionary boot camp in Texas called Honor Academy, where the most gung-ho are groomed for the spiritual war to come. The angriest man on the religious right is how the article's author, Jeff Charlotte, describes Luce, and Luce isn't toning down that anger for the sake of his media image. In fact, says Charlotte, he's playing it up. Ron Luce is this brilliant media strategist who recognizes that, look, if I speak about war, if I say that media makers, in fact, are like al-Qaeda, which he does in his book, Battle Cry, if I say these things, these things are so sensational, I'm going to get a lot of attention and I'm going to grab the attention of kids. And what happens is these kids who don't necessarily understand that that's a media strategy come to accept that as a basic way of looking at the world. And so I spent about a week at Luce's Honor Academy in Texas talking with kids, and that was a normal tenor of conversation amongst the really sweetest kids who would sit there and gently tell you over a lunch of lasagna about the need to wage total war on secularism. Okay, so these youths are rallied to war. What exactly is the war against? The people that he focuses on most often are media makers. The one thing that Luce does differently is that he trains media infiltrators, and that's his term, is, is we want to infiltrate secular media. And so he created as part of his, his academy in Texas a really nice high-tech school for training kids how to produce media. He hired a VH1 behind the music producer who'd become born again to direct it. And at this point, these kids are, I think their biggest success was for a, a heavy metal band called Pillar that had a, a video on MTV. I think a lot of fans didn't know it was Christian. They're very aware that Christian media for decades was just awful and cheesy and it's just pure kitsch. And I think now they recognize that if we can produce really quality media, but that nonetheless has this fundamentalist message, then we're going to win kids over. If they can, you know, get to Hollywood and make movies that are actually pretty good, like the Chronicles of Narnia, those become... Uh, the media equivalent of gateway drugs to bring you in to drink the full Kool-Aid of fundamentalism. Now, you know, if the premise of Ron Luce and his teenage followers is that the media are the leading edge of the secular war against Christ, there could be no better example for them than the cover of the Rolling Stone uh, in which your article appeared. Would you care to describe the cover of the Rolling Stone for me and what you thought when you saw it? Well, we have Rosario Dawson and uh, Rose McGowan, the stars of the new movie Grindhouse, and they're naked and uh, rubbing their butts together, covering their breasts and other private areas with their hands and uh, belts of bullets. And uh, there's a big red headline that says, Very Bad Girls. Um, I have to admit, I took some delight in thinking of just how red with rage Ron Lewis is going to turn when he sees this issue. You know, here's the thing. Look, is this cover sexist? Of course it is. Does it objectify women? Yes. And it's one of the interesting things about Ron Luce is that 80% of his critique of media is very similar to the critique I heard in my godless, demonic, secular, very leftist media history courses at college. It's the same analysis, Luce has a different solution. Uh, Luce just wants to destroy it. But even though there's this aggressive rhetoric, they're not going to go off and attack, you know, the headquarters of NBC. It's about teaching them to never look at NBC again. So are they jihadists? Are they saboteurs? 
Uh, are they moles? Uh, what What is the vision? I think they're moles and saboteurs who inspire themselves with the rhetoric of jihad. One video he made shows a kid watching MTV and then crawling up over the couch behind him is a suicide bomber, and this suicide bomber represents secularism. And Ron Luce writes often that secularism and, and Islam are, are almost indistinguishable, that they're in this together to destroy Christianity. So the suicide bomber crawls over and then blows himself and, and the innocent boy up, the idea being that that's essentially what MTV is, is trying to do to you, is to kill you. And the response to that is to join this sort of military maneuver, and then the videos will show, here's you marching off to war, and suddenly the boy replicates and replicates. And so now we have a, an army of a thousand identical boys marching. Um, it is, and I use this word very advisedly, it is the aesthetic of fascism. Ron Luce isn't a fascist, but it is the aesthetic of fascism. And one of the strange things about Ron Luce is it's also the aesthetic of Stalinism. They have these red flags that they wave, and you're not a member of this movement, you're a trench mate. It is designed to draw very stark lines and to dehumanize those who are on the other side. It sounds monstrous. Is there any benign way of viewing this? Yeah. Yeah, there is. A lot of these people are there not because they hate the world so much, but because they want to be engaged with the world. Unfortunately, Ron Luce and his angry rhetoric are the ones who get to them first. And I feel like the sort of the benign read of this is if someone goes and talks to them and says, look, you know, we care about you too and we want you to feel proud of what you believe in and so on, but that doesn't have to be framed by hating other people. I think these kids respond to that beautifully and brilliantly. These are some of the gentler and kinder kids I've met. Um, they don't want to be in a war, but that's all they're being offered. Let us turn our thoughts today to Martin Luther King And recognize that there are ties between us All men and women living on the earth Ties of hope and love, sister and brotherhood. That we are bound together in our desire to see the world become a place in which our children can grow free and strong. We are bound together by the task that stands before us and the road that lies ahead. We are bound, and we are bound. Well, it all began at, at Christmas two years ago when my daughter was four years old. And um, it was the first time that she had ever asked about what, it, what, what did this holiday mean. And so I, I explained to her that this was the celebrating the birth of... Uh, of Jesus. And she wanted to know more about that. And we went out and bought a kid's Bible and had these readings at night. She loved them, wanted to know everything about Jesus. Um, so we read a lot about his birth and about his teaching. And, um, she would ask constantly what that, what that phrase was. And I would explain to her that it was do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we would talk about those old words and what that all meant, you know. Um, and then one day we were driving past uh, a big church and out front was an enormous crucifix. She said, who is that? And I guess I'd never really told that part of the story. <laughs> so I had to sort of, yeah, oh, well, that's that's Jesus. And I forgot to tell you the ending. Yeah, well, you know, um, he, he ran afoul of the Roman uh, government. You know, this message that he had was so radical and unnerving to the prevailing authorities of the time that they had to kill him. They, they came to the conclusion that he would have to die. That message was too troublesome. It was about a month later after that Christmas, we'd gone through the whole, whole story of what Christmas meant. And, and it was mid-January, and her preschool... Uh, celebrates the same holidays as the local schools. So Martin Luther King Day was off. And uh, so I knocked off work that day, and I decided we'd play, and I'd take her out to lunch. 
And uh, we were sitting in there, and right on the table where we happened to plop down was the art section of the local newspaper. And there, big as life, was a huge drawing by, by like a 10-year-old kid in the local schools of Martin Luther King. And uh, she said, who's that? And I said, well, as it happens, that's Martin Luther King. And he's why you're not in school today. So we're celebrating his, his birthday. This is the day we celebrate his life. And uh, she said, so who was he? And I said, well, he was, a, he was a preacher. And she looks up at me and goes, for Jesus? And I said, yeah, yeah, actually he was. But, um, but there, was, there was another thing that he was really famous for, which is that um, he had a message. You know, and you're trying to say this to a four-year-old. It's very, you know, this is the first time they ever hear anything. So you're just very careful about how you phrase everything. So, so I said, you know, uh, well, yeah, he, he was a preacher and he, he had a message. She said, what was his message? And I said, well, he said that you should treat everybody the same no matter what they look like. She thought about that for a minute. And she said, well, that's what Jesus said. And I said, yeah, I guess it is. You know, I never thought of it that way, but yeah. And that is sort of like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And uh, she thought for a minute and looked up at me and said, did they kill him too? This is going to be it for me. I'm so glad that I got to do my last episode on my very favorite topic of all. So I hope you enjoyed it. I, I know I did. Um, this this will be my last uh, official episode as uh, head producer of Best of Left. But it's not outside the realm of possibilities that I may occasionally or at some point in the future... Uh, come back and, and maybe guest produce uh, an episode or two, but uh, I certainly won't make any promises on that. But I do just want to say one last time, uh, with as much sincerity as I can possibly muster from the bottom of my heart, uh, I, I just can't say enough how much this show means to me, how much I've gained from it, um, benefited from it, and and gained and benefited from the support of the audience. Uh, you guys, uh, even if you've never written in uh, or made any kind of contact with me at all, uh, just that you are there and I can see your number there as, as part of the tally of the number of people who listen to the show, you have helped keep me going and kept this show going uh, over time. And, and it really can't quite be valued how much this show has, has meant to me and, and by extension how much 
you have meant to me. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much for your support. Please continue to support the show. I'm leaving you all in very capable hands, and I think this show is destined for greatness under new management that will be able to keep it running on a more regular schedule, I believe, than than I have been of late. So for one last time, uh, for now, I've been coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the border of Washington, D.C., where I have uh, enjoyed so much amazing uh, success and coincidence that uh, my life has taken such a turn that I'm unable to remain with you. My name's Jay, and you've been listening to the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Who shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life just a fun fun